What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Welcome back to another episode of What Got You There where we dive deep and hear the journey behind some of the world's most accomplished influencers. I'm your host, Sean Delaney. Today, we're joined by Tim Sanders. Tim is a best-selling author, public speaker, and former Yahoo executive. He joined Yahoo through the acquisition of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com. After arriving at Yahoo, he gained an executive position as chief solutions officer and was promoted to leadership coach before leaving the company. He's also the author of four best-selling books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App. His newest book, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm a huge fan of Audible and definitely recommend checking it out. Tim, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great, Sean. Glad to be with you. Now, Tim, you are someone who anyone in the sales realm has looked up to for a while. Um, Your newest book, Deal Storming, uh, fascinating read. You've done so much in the world of sales for so long. Um, but I'm curious, how do you start your day? Uh, that's a good question. So when I get out of bed, I know what I don't do. I don't check my email for at least 30 minutes. So so what I what I prefer to do first thing in the morning is to sit down and read from whatever book I'm currently obsessed with. And I like it, Sean, because it's a slow food way to start my day. And once I finish that, then I address whatever I'm going to talk about in the morning on LinkedIn. Um, And then I kind of move into my first writing session for the day, and then I go to the gym. And and usually that takes me to one of my first conversations like we're having right now. It's funny, all all the people I've interviewed so far, it seems like many of them have a similar morning routine, freeing up their mental clarity, uh, the free mind space, and also a little bit of physical activity. So just interesting hearing that. What book are you uh, consuming right now? I'm currently finishing up Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project. Oh, love Michael Lewis's work. Have not read that one yet, but looking forward if you to liked, it. Yeah, if you liked Moneyball, you need to read this. It's a great backstory about two Israeli psychologists who served in the Air Force who suggested that the reason we make mistakes is that we measure the wrong things. And their thinking led to a lot of changes early on in sports about measuring different things. For example, instead of wondering how quickly a basketball player runs a 40-yard dash, you should ask yourself, how quickly can he jump five feet sideways? Okay, so you can imagine that after Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball, he started to get feedback. And one piece of feedback was these two guys invented big data 40 years before you ever talked about it. So mm. that intrigued Michael. So this is a book about their relationship and the birth of the idea um, that we make mistakes mentally because we really never make a decision. What we do is we look for what they call representativeness, something that looks like it should be the right answer. It's a very intriguing kind of hard read, 
Um, but it certainly will expand your mind as a leader or entrepreneur about what you might be doing to intelligently make huge mistakes. Yeah, no, that sounds very interesting. And I'll definitely have to check that one out. So Tim, for my listeners who are not familiar with you, you want to give a brief background on yourself? Sure, absolutely. So um, my career really took off. I was a sales guy for like 15 years, but my career really took off uh, when I took a job in 1997 at Mark Cuban's AudioNet, which became Broadcast.com the following year for the IPO. This was the startup uh, that really started Cuban's ascent. He st- he sold that company to Yahoo. That's when he bought the Dallas Mavericks. I went to Yahoo with the acquisition, um, and I went to Yahoo just as a you know sales guy, and I, I was promoted a bunch of times in a few years. And I became the chief solutions officer of Yahoo by 2001. Right after that, I published my first book while I was still a CSO um, called Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. Um, wrote the book on my spare time. And, and, and really, Sean, it was a book uh, about a training program I developed for the young Yahoos for them to find success that they could be proud of in the market. And it was based on a discovery I'd made a few years before working for Mark um, about how you can find success by promoting the success of other people and then trusting the universe for them to pay it forward. Um, I left Yahoo in 2005, formed a consulting company. I published four books since then. The one you have, the recent one, Deal Storming, uh, just came out uh, middle of last year. And it's a book about how to be faster at building collaborative teams to either solve big sales challenges or to raise money or really um, to mow your way through anything that's complex or complicated uh, where there is a stake in the outcome for everybody involved. Wow, that is one impressive background for sure. So I want to go back to the young Tim Sanders. What were you like as a kid? Did you have any failures um, with sales at a young age that kind of sparked your interest? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had I had some challenges as a kid. So my grandmother, um, I, I talk about all this in my um, fourth book, Today We Are Rich. It was really a book about my childhood. But my grandmother raised me on a farm in eastern New Mexico in a little city called Clovis. We had, I believe, eight books on our bookshelf, the Bible and seven motivational books like Napoleon Hill's Today We Are Rich or Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking or Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. And that's what, as a little kid, I absorbed and read. Um, I was put into special education in the middle of my second grade year. um, And I got out of special education and back into the public school system um, at the end of the sixth grade, my nickname, Sean, was Short Bus when I went to Yucca Junior High. So you can imagine I had a very challenging, challenging childhood of fitting in and figuring out how to deal with bullies and, and, and trying to manage a brand, you know, that was obviously very difficult. Um, but I joined the debate team my sophomore year. It changed my life. I learned how to win. I learned how to make friends. Um, I went on to be the the president of my senior class, which was really a surprise for everybody. I, t- I was at a reunion recently. We all talked about how that was weird that that worked out like that. <laughs> but um, I took my first sales job when I was a senior selling radio spots uh, for an FM station. I was like door to door, rocking and knocking. Um, <laughs> that that went pretty well. I think my first really big challenge as a salesperson happened years later after college when I was selling uh, advertising for the Discovery Channel and. And it was really hard because in the early days of cable, 
not only did you not have a big viewership, nobody could really measure the results. So that's when I was really challenged to sell air um, as opposed to like when I sold radio or whatever, selling promotions, those types of things. So it was a real challenge for me. I wouldn't say I struggled as much, but I had to make a real transition uh, to learning how to sell people the value of faith. Like, like really believing that if we have a big reach, it's going to make a big difference. And I remember telling my wife, um, I'm not going to be in the advertising sales business my whole life. So when I went to work for Cuban, broadcast.com sold business services. So we worked for companies that wanted to use audio streaming or video streaming. And I was like, hurrah, I have escaped. <laughs> I have escaped the world of selling air. And then of course, a couple of years later when Yahoo bought us, I was promptly put back into the online advertising space, you know, selling those banner ads back in the day that nobody clicked on. So it's been an interesting ride for me, but for the last decade, I've had an opportunity to work with just about a hundred B2B and enterprise and marketing and all kinds of other companies on how their sales challenges are playing out. And as an auditor and as a trainer and a coach, it's really expanded my point of view about what it takes in 2017 to be successful in sales. Yeah, I've been blown away by uh, some of the companies you've worked with and just the breadth and scope of those companies. It's, it's given you to such an insight into all of those and how they deal with sales. So you mentioned broadcast.com. What was it like working alongside of Mark Cuban? It was great if you did everything correctly and had your research perfect. And I don't say that <laughs> cynically, but it was great. I mean, the thing about Mark is he's mercurial. Okay. Um, we used to call him the Cuban Missile Crisis because if something went wrong, he's going to roll a grenade across email and it's going to be a really, really big deal. So the guy plays to win. The guy plays with passion. Um, so you really, you really have to have your act together and you really have to think through the things you suggest to him because if it is a good idea in his view, he's going to adopt it yesterday. He always said, if you feed your mind, you can trust your gut. And I will credit him with really two things, Sean. Um, when I went to work at broadcast.com, again, we called it AudioNet back in those days. I noticed that he had created a culture of studentship. So he read. He read books everywhere he went. When he was on the treadmill, he was reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and throwing the papers on the floor. He didn't have casual talk. He didn't listen to talk radio when he was driving somewhere. This dude was busy absorbing insights and what he called edge-level intelligence. So he didn't just study computer stuff and internet stuff. He got intrigued by how the stock market worked, sports psychology, branding theory. And so I kind of caught that bug from him and I started to read and and I don't I can't say I read as much as he did. When I met him in July of 97, I think he'd probably read 50 books that year. Wow. But 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 he taught me something that the future is in the books. The future's not in USA Today, which should be called USA Yesterday. It's not in, bite, <laughs> it's not in these little bite-sized stories. When you read books and you commit yourself to be that kind of person that's really a student of the game, um, you're gonna, your brain's going to change in how you absorb concepts. You're going to think more long-form. You're going to try to look for the structure of an argument, the data that supports an argument, the anecdotes that illustrate an argument. And what, where it really makes a difference is how you share so as I would go out and talk to our customers at broadcast.com about the future of the internet, and I'd read a book on the subject, or I'd read a book on the subject of how e-commerce was going to play out, I'm not operating at the bite-sized level with these folks. I'm taking them on a really deep dive that's sharpening their perspective, and I noticed that it made a real change in how they thought about me. 
So I wasn't a sales guy to those folks. I was an essential partner in helping them make a transition from the old world to the new world. So, so Mark, I really credit with that. And the other thing that I kind of caught from working for him that I still think about a lot today was his, his core value around service. So he had a sign on the wall and he talked about it a lot. And it was make love, not war. And that was his simple philosophy for running a business that provides a service to customers. He said, most companies, they make war. They make a lot of promises. They get you under contract. You ask for service or adjustment and you go to war with them. You're right. You're wrong. You know, that kind of thing. He said, so here's what we're going to do. If the client's not happy with the broadcast, I want you to tear up the invoice and learn something from the experience. If the client signs a contract to do a certain type of broadcast, and at the last minute, it seems like they need to do a simple adjustment, unless it's going to cost us a boatload of cash, smile, don't remind them that they agreed to something else, and just do it. He said his prediction would be that everybody else in the startup space is going to be so focused on the bottom line, they're not going to be able to adopt a strategy like make love, not war. And you know what, dude? He was right. It was a real way to differentiate in the market. And I kind of took that and ran with it. And it led to Love is the Killer app where I went beyond customer service. And I said to myself, you've got to really care about your customers. And you've got to learn to put the customer's circle of concern at the center of the table. And as an innovator and as an entrepreneur, your job isn't just to build a business. Your job is to figure out how to make customers happy by serving them empathetically. So, so you guys said you tore up the invoices. Um, you mean eating the cost of those, correct? Yeah, we did. Yeah. I mean, you know, Hey, a startup doesn't make money. It loses money slowly. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I'm sorry. That's a, that should have been a Mitch Hedberg joke, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, we do a $10,000 deal with Harvard. I remember this was the space and we were going to do a broadcast of one of their events. And one of our guys on site in Boston didn't plug the pots line in exactly right. So it was all crackly and they weren't happy about it. So without even asking Cuban, I tore the invoice up and I think we lost about two grand in expenses, you know, sending the guy out there and a little bit of telco cost. We all learned a lesson about um, getting there the day before and having a second line to back up and a switch we could flip to. So we never did it that way again. I thought it was a very valuable lesson um, at a pretty cheap cost. But here's the punchline. In a company, culture is a conversation led by leaders about how we do things here. And if the culture is strong, then we know exactly what to do, even when the Mark Cubans of the world aren't around to tell us what to do. What does that mean? It means that we're able to actually react like a friend to the customer. We don't do this corporate speak thing where we're like, well, listen, I'm really sorry that you're not happy with the broadcast. Let me go send 15 emails and have three meetings. And within two weeks, I'll get back with you on what we're going to do. No, I get the pleasure uh, of telling the client in the moment, guess what? We're not going to charge you for this. We're going to learn a lesson from this. We're really sorry it turned out like this. I hope you can trust us with another opportunity, okay? As a salesperson, enabling me to make that decision and to deliver that news is as empowering as closing a big deal. And by the way, um, in that situation with Harvard and the Kennedy School, um, they did more with us. They did six more events with us. When we IPO'd, which was the biggest opening day in history, the Harvard logo was on our happy clients list. I can only imagine how it would have turned out if we tried to say, well, we'll give you 10% off or the next time we won't make the same mistake. So Cuban's intuition was very correct. And years later, when I talk to people that 
did business with a much younger Mark, fresh out of Indiana University when he had his first little computer PC service company. That's always the story they told, is that he was just obsessed with everything going perfect for them, and he didn't think about his business like he thought about their business. And so that was kind of cool. Hmm. You mentioned culture, and in 2017, you've worked with so many companies. What do you think is one of the biggest challenges with culture today, and where are they making mistakes, and how can they correct their culture? So first of all, culture is very important. Um, I was sitting around a a table of startup founders last year and um, a lot of really cool little startups in the publishing space. One of them was Goodreads, which Amazon bought um, later. And they were all talking about like, what, what do you wish you did earlier? And they all unanimously agreed. I wish we would have made culture our number one job as a leader. Mm. And here's why. In an organization, a culture is like an operating system. Because when everyone knows how we do things here and understands what we value, they know exactly what to do. In other words, the culture creates an intuition that everybody has in the group, and it allows them to move very quickly, very consistently, and it also allows them to know if they fit in. And so it's really important to have a culture. You can't have a good company until you build a strong culture. And the problem is, is that by the time you get to your 10th employee, your culture is set and it's really hard to change it. And if you as a leader don't choose a culture, guess what? The default culture is going to choose you. And the default culture comes from the old world of IBM, which, by the way, stands for I've been moved. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The default culture says every person for themselves. Don't get fired by screwing it up, but for God's sakes, don't give the other guy a leg up on you because this is a competition. And that's the default culture. And it sets in an organization. So you can call it silos, whatever you want. You must remember that the most important question you have to answer for a human being when they come to work is what's in it for me. So you've really got to undo that, right? So strong cultures, like say what Tony Shea built at Zappos or what the Nordstrom family built, um, they were very intentional. That from day one, people understood that this is our number one value. And in scenario A, we do this. And scenario B, we do that. And it was so clear to everybody. They even threw people out of the company that didn't carry those same values. And it just had a huge impact on their level of consistency. So that's why it's very important. Here's what I think is wrong today. Um, And I had to kind of segment this conversation. So with a lot of big companies, the problem with culture has to do with the fact that they mistakenly believe that their number one job is to make the shareholders happy. And it is a job. Um, But if the shareholders believe that is the number one job, they're not a very good group of shareholders, right? Because you know what you call a company without customers? Out of business? A whiteboard diagram. Yeah, out of business. Exactly. So, you know, our number one job is to deliver the value to the customer that started the company in the first place. And our innovation challenge, the number one innovation challenge is to make that value work in the face of operating challenges and profit and loss challenges and third party stakeholder demands and all those other things. If you're a good leader, you're going to figure it out. So for a big company, they just have to understand that they need to have the same passion about customer success at 10,000 employees that they had uh, when they were two guys in a shed. With the smaller companies, like let's say a small mid-sized company that's like two or 300 employees are up, 
The thing that I find is that sometimes they still have the founder value disease. And what I mean by that is that when you start a company, you kind of oftentimes you have a series of values you choose and they're really not core to who you are. They just, they're like, I call them pet values. It might have something to do with something that happened to your dad and you saw it when you were growing up and you kind of told yourself, well, when I start a company, you know, we're not going to do things like that. And, and everybody kind of resonates with it when you're, you know, five or 10 people, they go, that's really cool. But, but the problem is, Sean, is that corporate values must produce business value. Okay. Whatever value you choose needs to resonate with the market. In other words, the prospects and the customers go, that makes them different than everybody else because the value has to differentiate you. The culture has to separate you from the pack. And too many times the founders stick around too long or they just stick with that value as they grow to 100 and 500 and 1,000 employees. And all of a sudden their core value of transparency is irrelevant because everybody in their market's already transparent. And they've got to figure out how to grow with the times and how to change values as the size of their business changes. So the last thing I'll say here is that when Google was quite young, one of their engineers suggested in one of their meetings that one of their core values should be don't be evil. Well, if you go to the Googleplex today, that's not a top 10. That's not to say they are evil. It's to say that they, after time, realize it, uh, that other companies in their space, like the Facebook or whoever, they're not evil. It's just that when they started the company, that founding person, that early stage engineer had had very bad experiences from big technology companies like a Microsoft or whatever, who they thought were evil and they didn't want to be them. But as they grew up, they realized that wasn't what the market cared about when it came to Google. The market cared about them organizing the world's information and them having a value of breaking perfect systems. And so that is now their driving value. That's an example of a company who grew up and got it right. I mean, you mentioned value and the value you bring to this conversation is just tremendous. So I appreciate that. And I know my listeners will. So well, I, thank you. Yeah. I want to hear about your progress into your role at Yahoo, how you go from uh, the CSO and eventually leadership coach. How do you work your way up in a company like that? So um, I get that question a lot because people always say like, Tim, I, I just got a job at Cisco or, or they'll say in the more modern terms, hey, I just got a job in operations at Tesla. Tell me how I can be successful because I want to I be on the deal team, right? I want to move up. And so I always say the same thing. Learn, demonstrate learning, lead others to learn. If you want ownership and senior management to pull you up to where they are, be a thought leader. Help them scale the company because the only way you scale a company is to scale learning inside a company because scaling means that you grow really fast without distorting the value proposition that got you started in the first place. Um, if we were screen sharing or if I were giving a speech, I always love to put up a picture at this point and it's this big blurry blob and you go, gosh, what is that? And I go, that is an image that was designed to be one inch by one inch, but I'm showing it to you 50 feet by 50 feet. So all you're seeing is this pixelated mess. That's what a lot of companies turn into when they grow up fast. Because learning doesn't scale with the opportunity. So I think the number one thing that enthuses senior management to promote you is you to demonstrate to them your commitment to get it and to help other people get it. Because to quote the Chinese proverb, if no one's following you, you're not a leader, you're just taking a walk. 
So, so leadership is first and foremost demonstrated, and then later it's formalized with a title. Okay. So when I was still, I think I'd had one promotion, I don't know, two promotions. And I was director of this thing called the value lab. And I just want you to think of us as like the, 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 the a team that was brought in when there was a really big deal that looked stuck and we do a bunch of research and I might take over the presentation part. And then we'd kind of work with finance to structure the deal terms, et cetera. But anyway, I was a director of a value lab. And at that point, uh, when I spoke at sales conference, I was, I was having more influence on after-conference behavior than our chief sales officer. And I think it was at that point that he said, we need to put Tim on the management team because more people are following him than following me. And it really was not because of my personality or anything. It was that we were in times of great change and I kind of emerged as a person that connected the dots for the sales team. And I did it in the field with them and it created loyalty. So that's just to review this idea, learn, demonstrate learning, lead others to learn, and they'll pull you up. So simple, yet so powerful. I think my listeners can really take that away and implement into that, into their daily lives and in their business careers and what they're doing right now. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And when I say learn too, I don't mean just read books. I mean, I want you to be as curious as Columbo, the TV detective. <laughs> you need to understand how your company creates value. That is the most important thing you need to understand. You need to understand how that value creation has come to be, what the true capabilities of the company are in the future, how products really work, how customers really think. I mean, you just need to get into the nitty gritty as if you owned the place, because that's the attitude that will make you a leader in an organization. People need to say, that guy bugs me because he asks too many questions. Yeah, well, that's the person who's on a learning journey. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. Now, I definitely want to jump into your book, Deal Storming, in a minute, but you say constantly learning. Who are you learning from today? Who do you look up to? I look up to a ton of people. I mean, uh, I've learned to kind of change my look up to whatever it is I need to learn next. Oh, that's a great way to pivot there. Yeah, because I don't really, uh, it's really, it's really dangerous to anchor around a particular person, you know, whether they call themselves a thought leader or they're an author or whatever. And I, and, and I see this going on in our new podcasting, not you, not you, but our new YouTuber uh, online th thing where somebody can build up a following of a million. And, and I, I'm really worrying that there's a generation of entrepreneurs and creatives and people that they love to subscribe to these guys that scream at them and curse at them and tell them they're not working hard enough and that you need to forget about your weekends. You need to do it like I do. And, it, and, and they have all these lifestyle videos that show that they get up at five in the morning. I'm really worried about that, dude, because it's good entertainment. You know, if you want some business S&M every day, but as I, you know, kind of dive into them because I want to study the things that I compete with, they're not giving anybody any value. I mean, it's really easy to tell somebody that you need to work harder like I did, but it's harder to help them understand how to work smarter. So, so I just really advise listeners, don't anchor around one person that you look up to. Look up to the person um, that is 
is the helpful guide that can take you from A to B because that's what mentorship really is. Mentorship is when someone helps a hero on their journey to get to the next step. And it involves a relationship, not a third party, a doorship. Very well said, and that's very powerful. So Tim, now I want to jump into your book, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. So when you're going about writing a book like this, what's your process? I know you've had so much experience in the past, um, but when you were really writing this one, what were you doing to get all this information together? Because there's some unbelievable wisdom and nuggets in here. So the Deal Storming is a book that is the result of 10 years of consulting and 10 more years of actually doing it in the field. So I've always been collecting notes. I didn't, I really didn't, I really didn't know if I was going to write a book about deal storming because I didn't, at the time, I didn't know if the process would be highly interesting to people. If you weren't a chief sales officer in an organization that would, had a bunch of stuck deals. But when I went to my publisher, Penguin Portfolio, they thought it was really important because there's an entire generation of salespeople who prescribe to this challenger sale methodology, right? That we've got to take control of the conversation because the number of decision makers is out of control and it's really complicated to close anything these days. And they felt like deal storming would complement that. So once we realized that that was the book for me to write. Then I was able to burrow in for a couple of years, go back to my clients, get the right permissions, and to really codify the seven steps to solving a complex deal process. But I'll tell you this for those listening that want to write a book someday. The process is quite simple if you want to get it right, okay? You need to write a book that only you can write. In other words, You have an expertise, you have a set of personal experiences that make you the only person in the world that can write this book. You do not write a book because you think the topic is interesting. You do not write a book because there hasn't been a book written on it before. You're like thinking like an invention on Shark Tank. Those books don't sell because they don't ring true. They don't add personal value, right? So um, one of the things I told a a guy a long time ago who was going to write a book, he ended up writing a very successful book, is I said, here's the thing. People want to read books by people who've accomplished something, right? So when you accomplish something, you kind of stop and you tell the world, here's how I did it and here's how you can do it too. And that's the book they buy by the caseload, whether it's the four-hour work week 10 years ago by Timothy Ferris or whether it's a modern day uh, big win book today, say um, like a, a book by Reid Hoffman you know, about LinkedIn. People want to know how you were successful, so you've got to create success first, and then you write a book about how you did it. It's a process and a journey, that's for sure. It sure is, man. (laughs) So you mentioned the seven steps, qualify, organize, prepare. You want to go into all seven of these and just kind of lightly hit on them? I definitely want my listeners to pick up this book, but if you could give a, a brief overview, that would be great. Well, here you go. Here's the concept. When you get stuck in a sales challenge, whatever it is, closing a deal, raising some money, here's the idea. Don't go down alone. You need to create a team around that challenge, and it needs to be people that aren't just in sales. Very important. But you have to understand that collaboration takes time, and it gets other people to do favors for you. So you have to have a process. Otherwise, you know, it's a goat rodeo. You're just, you know, it's like a stupid brainstorm meeting that some of you <laughs> might have been involved with in your career. So anyway, here, here, here's the idea. So let's say, Sean, you're stuck on some sales deal or you're stuck on fundraising. And you go, okay, well, I can't get this done on my own. So you're going to go through the seven steps. Number one, qualify. Ask yourself, do you really need to build a team for this? 
Is it a big enough opportunity to make it worth other people's time to come help you? That's step one. I mean, you can easily figure that out, right? Um, step number two, organize your team. Ask yourself, who has a really big stake in whether I win or lose? Because they're going to really care. And by the way, that's going to involve people like in customer service that usually never get asked. It might involve people in other departments like marketing who really care about your win and they usually get brought in either too early or too late. So it's a great way to build your blockers and tacklers for your team. And then the second question you ask is, who has expertise about why I'm stuck? Now stop and think about that. Who is an expert about why I'm stuck? Even if you're with a small company now, you can get that expert outside that company. It might be somebody you met at a trade conference. It might be one of your supplier partners that depends on your success. But you want to have a bunch of blockers and tacklers that care about the outcome and one or two, quote, experts uh, that can help you see the problem space differently. Because, and here's a write down moment, a done deal is a hundred problems solved. Hmm. Okay. It's not a, it's not some magic pitch where everybody claps their hands and some Glengarry, Glen Ross clothes. That's not how it works in the real world where everybody's got to go talk to 10 people to say yes. You got to solve problems at every level of the deal. So when you build this team, that's what you're looking for, problem solvers, okay? Third step, prepare. Because chance favors the prepared mind. You don't throw people in the room like a brainstorm meeting, tell them at high level what the problem is, snap your fingers and say, come up with a list of ideas. When you have a deal store meeting, you're looking for the next play. The thing you're going to do when you walk out of the room that solves the next challenge between you and the deal. And you don't do that in the moment. You do it after everybody's had time to incubate and think about it. So here's the strategy. If you were going to have a deal store meeting and you picked your team, schedule it for Tuesday at 10 a.m. By the end of the day, Thursday, I want you to send out what I call a deal brief to everybody that's going to be in the room next Tuesday. The deal brief, and you know, there's a template for it in the book. Basically, it says, here's the opportunity. Here's why we're stuck. Here's what we did so far and what they've said in response. And maybe here's some information about the company or the market. And finally, here's a thinking assignment for you. And you have to write a deal brief for every attendee that leverages their strengths and their in in insights, right? So, Sean, if you were on my team out of the marketing group, I'd say, you know, I want you to think about three ways we could change how we present our value proposition. If I had brought an engineer into the room, I'd say, I want you to kick some holes in my theory about why we're stuck. If I invited someone from our executive team, I would say, I want you to think about who's missing from this team. Okay, so everybody's got a different thinking assignment. And then on Friday, I'm going to call them all and say, did you read the deal brief? Do you understand what, what I want you to do next Tuesday? Here's the magic. Over the weekend, their mind is going to work on their assignment like a dog chews on a bone. Because mm -hmm. yep. that's what people do. <laughs> and by Monday, they got some ideas. And more, more importantly, they have some clarity in their mind about their assumption behind the idea. So when they walk in the room Tuesday, they're ready to talk about things, but they're not defensive because they've had time to understand why they believe what they believe. When you're in a meeting and a person has an idea and you criticize it and they freak out, it's because you haven't given them time to understand why. So it just feels like a personal attack, okay? So preparation is really, really important. Step four, you have a meeting. And the purpose of the meeting is not to have the next meeting. Purpose of the meeting is not to look like the smartest person in the room. Um, the purpose of the meeting is for everybody to find the next play that we can all live with. 
and then to agree to do joint work. The fifth step is to execute, and you want to execute very quickly. I want you to be impatient with how many days you're wasting between what you agreed to do in the room and what you're actually doing in the real world. Uh, step number six is you need to analyze whether you've made progress. You need to analyze whether the team is still right or you need to add or subtract people from the team because different levels of the sales process prevent, present different opportunities to bring in new experts, right? So always be kind of analyzing how this thing is going. And then step number seven is report. Keep people in the loop. If somebody comes to a meeting and contributes time, they need to be in the thread forever on this until they say, don't send me any more updates, because that's what people want. They want to know how it's going. And then if you win, you need to give credit to everyone on the team. You need to be very careful about giving credit to individuals, because collaboration, it's like being in a band. You don't take credit for something you didn't do all by yourself. Um, side note, I'm really into music. I was in a <laughs> band for years. You know this. And I, I love Jane's Addiction. They were one of my favorite bands of the um, true alternative era. And when you study what happened to Jane's Addiction, it's really simple. Uh, Perry Farrell took too much credit. He took the publishing on all the lyrics, which is 50% of all publishing. But they didn't do it like that. They'd walk into a room and Dave Navarro would have a riff and Perkins would play against it and it would create a groove and Eric would throw a bass line in and, and, and Perry would take, you know, probably a shot and then he'd be inspired and he'd say something like coming down the mountain. And then all of a sudden he would own that lyric and it pissed everybody else in the band off. And that's what broke the band up. And that's how it works in the real world. When you report success, you report the success of the team. Because the team makes the idea happen, not the individual. Genius is a team sport. Wow, that is a great quote right there. Genius is a team sport. And Tim, I just, I love the truth in all seven of those steps. Uh, I know I walked away after reading the book um, with just tremendous things I've already started to implement in my businesses. And I know the listeners will certainly implement these once they pick the book up as well. So I really appreciate you coming on today. For my listeners who wanna stay connected with you, you've got some great content out there on the web um, and also pick up your books. Uh, how can they find out more about you? Um, so um, that is a great question. I want everybody um, to visit. Are you ready here? You're going to visit timsanders.com and uh, just take a look at the deal storming. And um, if you want to just contact me via LinkedIn, uh, I accept all requests and I can't wait to get to know everybody better. Great. And I'll make sure to link all that up in the show notes, also uh, where they can buy the book and all of your uh, your social medias at Sanders Says. So Tim, thank you so much. Uh, I had a blast talking with you today. Really walked away from this conversation learning a lot and truly appreciate the time you put it into the book and then also our conversation here today. So thanks so much. Absolutely. You know, Sean, it just occurs to me, and I don't mean to do a right turn on you, but we're actually going to build a special page on my website just for your podcast listeners. And that special page will have a free chapter of the book. Um, it'll have a couple of bullet points about what got me here. Um, so it might resonate a little bit with them. So let me just give you that URL again. It is timsanders.com front slash W-G-Y-T. timsanders.com front slash W-G-Y-T. I got some special stuff for you there. Oh, Tim, we appreciate that so much. Well, best of luck in everything you have going on, and I'm really looking forward to having my listeners connect with you in the future. Thank you so much. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, 
What got you there? What got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.